Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. And now your host, Augusto Lopez Claros. Enjoy. Cedric Ringard is a lawyer, academic, and author. He's a professor and chair of public international law and head of the Department of International and European Law at Utrecht University. He's most known for his research on the law of jurisdiction, non-state actors, immunities, and international organizations. Professor Ringard has published over 300 papers and book chapters on topics related to the role of international law in the context of domestic courts, sanctions, and international responsibility. He's the author or co-author of two books and editor-in-chief of the Netherlands International Law Review and the Utrecht Law Review and serves as a member of the Advisory Committee on Public International Law advising the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Professor Ringard, for speaking to us today. We're very grateful to you for making the time in your busy schedule. I would like us to begin our discussion by introducing your recent paper entitled Towards an International Anti-Corruption Court. In this paper, which I had the pleasure of reading, you outline the proposal for an international anti-corruption court first introduced by Judge Mark Wolf in the United States. As you explain, the purpose of this initiative is to establish a multinational legal institution tailored specifically to prosecuting cases of grand corruption. We at the Global Governance Forum have long been supporting this campaign and its aims to tackle grand corruption and fraud on a global scale. So to get started, for our listeners, can you outline the case for the International Anti-Corruption Court? What are the potential ramifications of this type of body? Thank you, and it's a pleasure being here uh, today. So indeed, um, uh, this case for uh, an international anti-corruption court uh, was made for for the first time in 2014 by uh, Judge Mark Wolf, who's a judge um, in the United States. He was a district court judge in Massachusetts. And and Judge Wolf argued um, that such a court was really necessary because powerful, corrupt leaders um, do not permit the honest investigation and prosecution of their friends, families, uh, and indeed of themselves. And this applies even if such leaders or their countries have formally signed up to the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, which after all for them might just be a piece of paper. But I think the main rationale for the establishment of the court is to fill the accountability vacuum in kleptocratic regimes. In fact, this mirrors a bit the rationale for establishing the International Criminal Court, you could say some kind of sister organization, many years ago already in 1998, which 
As listeners may know, is currently investigating crimes committed in the context of the war in Ukraine. The proposals um, for this anti-corruption court are institutionally also models on this international criminal court, although this particular court, anti-corruption court, would of course only focus on one particular crime, the crime of corruption or grand corruption, as it is sometimes denoted, which is the abuse of public office for private gain by kleptocrats, literally thieves who rule. Now, this court would have an independent prosecutor and it would operate on the basis of complementarity. And complementarity means that the courts would only step in where states are unable or unwilling to prosecute and investigate cases of grand corruption. And the hope is that the existence and the operation of the court would bring pressure to bear on states to strengthen their domestic anti-corruption frameworks, their anti-corruption strategies, prosecutions, investigations, and if they fail to do so, then, and only then, the anti-corruption court would assume its responsibility. Now, in the meantime, this proposal has been supported by people like Richard Goldstone. Um, he's the first chief prosecutor of the UN International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, as well as by Robert Rodberg, who's a president emeritus of the World Peace Foundation. And also former international political leaders gathered in the Club de Madrid have supported the proposal. So there's quite some traction lately. Yes, I, um, I, I'd like to add to that list uh, the support expressed by 32 uh, Nobel, Nobel laureates um, as well, which I think adds some, some um, heft and credibility to the, to the, to the proposal. Um, According to the World Bank, um, uh, over two and a half trillion dollars, you know, somewhere between three and a little more percent of global GDP is lost to corruption annually. Um, kleptocrats continue to enrich themselves at the cost of vulnerable populations worldwide. Even, of course, in those cases where the state may have signed or, or, or is a party to the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. However, there is not a legal body tailored to hold these corrupt leaders and their associates accountable, right? And so, as you outline in your paper, grand corruption is not within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice. Therefore, it would seem further mechanisms must be implemented to reduce corruption on a, on a transnational level. My question now is, how would the establishment of this anti-corruption court fit into the equation of fighting grand corruption? You know, how would the court change public perceptions of corruption worldwide? Thank you. This is really a key question, of course. Um, now, to start, perhaps, it's not exactly true that currently there are no accountability mechanisms whatsoever 
to uh, prosecute acts of corruption or grand corruption. In fact, um, if you look at the UN Convention Against Corruption, which, by the way, counts a whopping 189 parties, so almost all countries are parties to this uh, convention of 2003. Now, this convention requires states, uh, and I emphasize states, to criminalize different forms of corruption, bribery, money laundering, training and influence, etc. cetera. Uh, so the idea is that corrupt leaders and their associates, uh, business persons and so on, would be held accountable before courts of states, so not international courts. So there was a lot of confidence um, uh, that states would be able to do the job. So that was the choice that was made 20 years ago. Um, but of course, uh, it may be wishful thinking to expect that national courts, national judges will hold to account the very kleptocrats who have appointed them. So this is why, indeed, we have this push for a truly international court, so above the national courts. So such a court, an international court, and, and the prosecutions, investigations um, it may start, can, in my view, have important expressive effects and symbolic effects. I think that more than a national court, an international court could flag could signal its moral indignation regarding acts of grand corruption. So this establishment, um, potential establishment of an international court, could act as a deterrent for acts of grand corruption and at the same time strengthen the international moral, political, legal consensus disapproving of grand corruption. Thank you. That's very interesting. It's very clarifying. Um, uh, as you describe in your paper, the proposed anti-corruption court is modeled in some sense, you know, after the International Criminal Court, but without certain elements such as the absence of uh, pretrial chambers and a narrower jurisdiction. The court, as Judge Wolf envisions it, uh, would hear both civil fraud and corruption cases from private whistleblowers, for instance. I'm interested to hear how the unique structure of this court will help promote anti-corruption initiatives worldwide. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on the, on the structure of the proposed anti-corruption court and how it can encourage anti-corruption practices in individual member states, because as you well know, you know, this is a very serious problem the world over. Do you believe that there should be any modifications to this proposal to better equip the court to effectively prosecute corruption and fraud cases? Well, I think first it's important to understand um, that this court is basically an enforcement mechanism. So it's a mechanism that enforces law that already exists. So there's no new law. The law is there. But the law, as you also imply in your question, is not adequately enforced. And the existing law, um, so what acts of corruption are not precisely criminal, that law can be found in that UN convention, um, which I already referred to, can be found in domestic law and an OCD convention, etc., uh, there's a lot, enough regulation, there's enough law, uh, but there's a lack of enforcement, there's a lack of accountability. 
Uh, now, let me just select a couple of issues um, uh, to highlight uh, to, to answer your question here. Um, I think one of the issues um, that is important first is, will this court just be forward-looking, looking at future cases, um, like the ICC, that was a decision that was taken, that the ICC would only look at acts, criminal acts that happened after the entry into force of the Rome Statute in 2002, and it didn't look at atrocities that were committed before 2002. It is clearly a limitation. Um, but I think um, um, if you look at the um, proposal for the International Anti-Corruption Court, some kind of retrospective effect should be possible. As a relevant acts, the acts that we're talking about, they have been criminalized already a long time ago. Um, so we, uh, uh, you can prosecute acts, in my view, that took place uh, before uh, the entry into force of the statute um, of such a court. Of course, <laughs> that will take many, many years before we have such a, such a statute. Uh, but uh, this then creates a possibility to also go after acts of corruption that take place right now and that have taken place in the past. An issue um, that is also addressed um, in the proposal, an issue that um, I have been looking at myself uh, in my own research at length, is the question of immunity. Now, that sounds a bit legal, but it's an important issue. Immunity is a procedural impediment uh, to prosecution, and it basically prevents that Government officials, state officials, um, can be uh, indicted um, before foreign courts. Uh, now, of course, states could decide to give this new international court the authority to exercise jurisdiction over their governmental officials simply by becoming a party to the court. So there's no problem there. But the problem is, and, and I'm sure we will address this also later today, um, the problem is that many states will probably not become a party to um, the study of the court, possibly the most corrupt states. But the court, of course, may well be interested in precisely going after the officials um, of those states. Now, for instance, because the crime of corruption has a link, some link could be a tenuous link, but some link at least, and that may suffice to actually trigger the legitimate jurisdiction um, of the court, a link with a state which has accepted the jurisdiction, right, which is a party um, to, to the statute. And it's interesting that um, in a similar case, the International Criminal Court has already ruled that it could prosecute officials of states that are not parties to the statute, of that ICC. That was in the case of al-Bashir, and it's very much in the news, of course, that was the former president uh, of, of Sudan. So the ICC ruled at the time, a couple of years ago, uh, when Bashir was still uh, the head of state, that immunity did not apply. Yeah? So there is a, a principle of customary international law uh, that provides that there is no such thing as immunity before international courts. I have to say that it's contested. Um, it's not fully settled yet, um, this issue, uh, but clearly uh, this is an issue that is going uh, to have to be addressed uh, head on by the drafters. And more recently, as you know, um, the ICC prosecutor has filed an arrest warrant 
um, against Vladimir Putin, who is the president of a state, the president of Russia, and Russia is not a party to the statute of the ICC. And allegations of grand corruption, as, as, as the listeners may know, have swirled also around Putin. So it's not unimaginable that an international anti-corruption court may one day, if ever it is established, may be interested in indicting, indicting Vladimir Putin. Um, fascinating. This is most most interesting, and and your comments also are very timely because of what's happening in the Ukraine. Obviously, um, a particular aspect of the of the International Anti Corruption Court that I am intrigued by is the geographical reach of of this court. Right, as as you outline in your paper, the court's jurisdiction would be based on territoriality, which would allow the court to prosecute cases not only against national of its member states, but also persons who engage in corruption within other national borders. And, and I guess this echoes what you just said a, a few minutes ago. You know, for instance, a, a Russian national that handled a bribe in Canada could be prosecuted by the court if Canada was a party to this court regardless of Russia's stance on this institution. And this echoes, again, the example that you gave about the ICC and in the context of the Ukraine. You note that the territoriality principle remains important to the court's ability to prosecute instances of money laundering worldwide, given the global nature of those, those networks. My question is, do you think this stands as an effective mechanism to handle complex cases of corruption. Um, as a comparison, how does the territoriality principle relate to similar initiatives by the International Criminal Court? Indeed. So the court will uh, be based on, on the principle um, of territoriality, indeed. So uh, a crime is committed on the territory of a state party. Uh, the state is a party to the statute of the court, and then the court has a derived territorial jurisdiction. So this is the whole idea. Now, this principle of territoriality, it might seem straightforward, but this is a principle that is extremely flexible. Um, now, in the criminal law, there is a theory called um, ubiquity. Uh, sounds like a very expensive word, but uh, it basically means that it suffices that one element of a global or transnational corrupt practice takes place on the territory of a state party for that state and then this international court, to have jurisdiction, even if it's only a very small element. What is key is that it can be linked somehow to the territory of a state party. So as you point out, um, if a person handed a bribe uh, in Canada, which we assume will then become a state party because it is one of the supporters um, of the court, then this international court would automatically have territorial jurisdiction regardless of the nationality of the person giving or receiving the bribe and regardless of the existence of a closer connection uh, of the crime with another country. It could be a closer territorial connection, but that doesn't matter. Even a tenuous territorial connection might actually suffice. And it may also happen as you refer to money laundering, it may happen that criminals launder their illicit income in a state party. 
um, to uh, the statute. Let's say Canada again. Uh, for instance, by investing the proceeds of corruption in the property markets in Western Canada, to just give an example. So also in this case, um, the court would have territorial jurisdiction, namely to prosecute the territorial offense of money laundering, which occurred um, in Canada. So there are actually lots of opportunities for the court uh, to go after acts of corruption by territorializing corruption, looking at a link, a territorial link with a state party. Now, we talked a lot about Canada, but I'm quite confident that Canada will assume its responsibilities here so that normally, under the complementarity principle, there will be no need uh, for the court to step in. Let's be clear about that. But the fundamental point um, that I want to make is the following. Grant corruption is not just local. Kleptocrats often and even always, I would say, make use of international networks, global financial systems to carry out their crimes and to invest the proceeds of the crimes. So my point is that it suffices that there is a link with a state party for the international courts to have jurisdiction. And accordingly, as also uh, Judge Wolf has said, it may suffice, in fact, um, to have just the major financial centers on board for this international court to be viable. Major centers where kleptocrats have invested their money. So think about Switzerland, the UK, Singapore, the Emirates, etc. In um, one of your earlier answers a few minutes ago, you noted and I think you do this in your paper as well, that the proposal for the court has received support by various government officials, NGOs, and, and a small number of states, notably the Netherlands and Canada. However, as you are aware, um, criticism has also arisen regarding the feasibility of the court. Um, you and I were in Brussels a few weeks ago uh, where you made a very interesting presentation before a committee of the European Parliament and uh, one of the guests invited by them you know, was critical of this, of, of this initiative. Um, particularly you know, the notion that the most corrupt countries would likely not submit themselves to its jurisdiction, right? And some critics additionally are also concerned that even if Western countries were to join this institution, public perceptions of the court could be linked to, uh, to use the term neo-imperialist objectives, as, as is the case in, in some parts of the world with the International Criminal Court. How would you respond to these criticisms? How can this court avoid similar objections like those made against the International Criminal Court? Thank you. Important questions. Legitimacy, effectiveness, um, feasibility, and a number of critics, um, as you pointed out, have voiced major concerns um, over um, um, the operation um, of the court. Uh, I think these critics indeed um, doubt whether um, the most corrupt countries would ever submit to the jurisdiction of the court. But even countries um, like the United States may not join the court simply because they are against joining supranational institutions. 
Uh, and remember in this respect that the U.S. has never joined the International Criminal Court either, although it is now, at least the administration, the current administration is broadly supportive of the ICC, especially regarding the situation in Ukraine, but that's really ad hoc. Um, now, in fact, it's sometimes thought that only smaller Western countries where corruption hardly exists will join the International Anti-Corruption Court. Think of the Nordic countries, um, for instance. In that case, of course, the court may not have much work to do, you might say. But alternatively, um, in, in some corners, uh, the court may be seen as what I would call a Trojan horse um, of the West, which is intent on subduing non-Western countries in some kind of replay of a, um, a civilizational mission um, dating back to colonial times. But I think the truth is really different, uh, because among the few countries um, that have come out in favor of the court are also non-Western countries. Think of Colombia, for instance, Ecuador, and recently also Nigeria. And one should realize um, that the court may possibly also exercise its jurisdiction, be interested in exercising its jurisdiction over Western corporations, Western accountants, Western lawyers, Western middlemen facilitators who are all involved in facilitating global corruption. So persons from the global north, the facilitators, may in fact well be targeted by the court. So in a way, I see this proposal for an international anti-corruption court also as a proposal to decolonize international criminal justice, as the court, as I just pointed out, could also go after corporations, facilitators that are based in the global north in the West. So I admit that initially um, it may perhaps be difficult to have many countries on board. So that's fairly typical for this kind of like uh, novel ideas and novel institutions. Uh, but more countries, I believe, may join if they see that the code is effective. Effective while at the same time respecting the sovereignty of states via the principle of complementarity. So uh, the court is really a stopgap measure. So it is only complementary to the jurisdiction of states. So it's not a super state or anything like that. Of course, countries are also more likely to join, I believe, if other countries put some pressure on them to join, preferably via economic incentives. So let's be realistic here. But also, they might just lead um, by the power of example. Right? So uh, I'm quite confident uh, that a substantial number of countries might, in the end, uh, join such a court. And remember uh, that, that the ICC was established perhaps much faster than initially thought uh, because so many countries uh, ratified the statute. Thank you. That's that's most interesting. Let me let me shift gears a little bit. Um, in in your paper, you also discuss several anti-corruption mechanisms that must be strengthened to properly confront grand corruption. Uh, in particular, you cite international asset repatriation by Interpol and and the World Bank. Um, 
criminal jurisdiction over corrupt acts by European Union nationals abroad, and you know, regional anti-corruption enforcement agencies. Um, I agree with uh, your position that these elements must be strengthened um, to properly complement the work of the proposed um, anti-corruption court. However, I'm, I'm particularly interested in your discussion of asset recovery as it would track these complex financial networks and return stolen assets to their proper owners. Very often, as you know, poor developing countries, right, um, where the opportunity cost of the corruption is very, very high in terms of, uh, you know, what that money could have done in, uh, in respect of education, public health, infrastructure, and, and so on. Can you elaborate, therefore, on your proposal to enhance asset recovery measures on a multinational scale. How can the funds derived from asset recovery and repatriation aid the affected populations of grand corruption? Thank you. Another key question indeed. Um, So, yeah, the idea is that this international anti-corruption court uh, would also have civil asset recovery power, meaning a power to seize stolen assets located in states that are party um, to the court. And subsequently, um, the court may obviously want to return these assets to the people affected by the crimes um, of corruption, you could say the legitimate owners um, of those assets. Um, Now, asset recovery is nothing new. Um, uh, The court does not need to start from scratch in this respect. There are many initiatives uh, underway since I would say the last 10, 15 years, uh, and you have already referred to a couple of them um, in in your question. There's a stolen asset recovery initiative at the World Bank and the UN Office on Drugs and Crime to delete their, there's Interpol, there's especially the US, which is really serious about this, the US kleptocracy asset recovery initiative. Um, And most recently, and as I'm based here uh, in Europe, um, the European Commission has unveiled uh, a proposal which has not yet been fully accepted, but it it doesn't look bad, a proposal for a new directive on asset recovery and and confiscation, which is then applicable to to the member states of the European Union. And this may allow EU member states perhaps to confiscate unexplained wealth that is linked to to a criminal Uh, activity and perhaps also confiscation without a prior conviction. So to make it easier uh, to seize these assets and then return them uh, to their uh, legitimate owners. Now, um, all too often, um, these seized assets might uh, simply disappear uh, into the coffers of uh, the confiscating state's treasury, if you're talking about a criminal or administrative um, procedure. Um, so uh, something needs to be done about that in any in any event. To give just one real-life example. So um, imagine you have the United States or you have a European state, let's say France, for instance, uh, seizing uh, the assets of the vice president of Equatorial Guinea, who is convicted of or accused of uh, corruption. So um, after these assets have been seized by the government, these assets are actually transferred uh, to that state, uh, to the treasury of the confiscating state, meaning the U.S. 
and, and France. So you may understand this is not fair. I mean, these assets were stolen from the people living under the yoke of the kleptocratic regime, the people of Equatorial Guinea. And because of corruption, indeed, these people may have suffered from underinvestment in education, healthcare, sustainable development, etc. So this is why we need to devise a mechanism to safely return these assets. And this is difficult, I admit that, because one needs to avoid transferring the assets back to the kleptocrats themselves. But there are some best practices around. For instance, there is an agreement between uh, the United States, Switzerland, and Kazakhstan that provides for the supervised return of assets stolen via acts of grand corruption, stolen from the people of Kazakhstan. That agreement is currently being implemented. So it's important to earmark assets, stolen assets, seized assets, for specific programs that really benefit the people. Programs on education, healthcare, sustainability, um, etc. And preferably, these programs are executed not by the state itself, but by non-governmental organizations whose work is then also monitored by international institutions, all in the interest of accountability and making sure that the assets are safely returned to the people who are the actual victims of acts of grand corruption. Thank you. This this has been a very, very interesting, very insightful uh, conversation. I, I really thank you for sharing generously of your time and your your insights. Um, to conclude our, our discussion, I, I want us to focus a little bit on the economic and social impact of grand corruption. This is a subject which has been of great interest to me personally, because um, you know, I have been uh, 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 an international civil servant uh, working as an economist for much of my professional life with the IMF and the World Bank and have seen up close, you know, the, the consequences of, of, of corruption on, on the development process. As you know, funds stolen from kleptocrats often disproportionately impact vulnerable populations. I'm thinking of women, minorities, the elderly, children, uh, in society, and, and obviously programs to benefit these groups become very often underfunded. Furthermore, these assets could instead be used to finance sustainable development, uh, to finance the transition to a renewable energy economy, uh, human rights initiatives, you know, all of which are tremendously important you know, internationally and for the countries in particular as we think you know about sort of stability in our in our political systems and so on how can combating uh, corruption improve global initiatives such as the sustainable development goals for instance do you believe that support for the international anti corruption court will promote these aims Thank you for the question. It's really key to link this to the bigger questions of um, global governance indeed. Um, so we have um, sustainable development goal number 16, uh, which calls quite generally, but still, for effective, accountable and inclusive institutions 
at all levels. But this also pertains to the global fights against corruption. So if you go to the website of the SDGs, uh, you will find uh, uh, that uh, they uh, say more needs to be done, really, on fighting corruption. And this focus of the SDGs on, on corruption doesn't surprise because corruption, as you already pointed out, undermines human development. It diverts public resources away from the provision of essential services from which people benefit. And the UN Development Programme is even of the view, and, and I think that's, that's a very important position, that this Sustainable Development Goal number 16 eh, on rule of law, corruption, accountability, contains the vital conditions to the achievement of all the other Sustainable Development Goals. So this means that there can be no sustainable development if corruption is not eradicated. So the hope is then that this course will give an extra stimulus to this global fight against corruption. But sure enough, and, and I want to be realistic here, the court, if it is ever established, is not going to be the silver bullet magically solving the problem of global corruption. And as I detail in the report for the European Parliament, um, there are a host of other initiatives, other mechanisms that need to be strengthened, that already exist, but need to become stronger. Think about dedicated anti-corruption enforcement and investigative authorities and agencies. But in my view, this court, this international anti-corruption court, if ever it sees the light of day, has its rightful place among those mechanisms of fighting global corruption. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 